I appreciate Nick's choice of there is more love somewhere for that musical meditation that you just heard. We're, we're not going to sing it, but if you take that gray hymnal beside you and open it up to number 95 and look just in the bottom right-hand corner of that page, you'll see that the tune for this hymn is Biko. B-I-K-O. There's actually a, a lot behind a lot of our hymns and songs, and I'm going to tell you about this sometimes. I'm going to try to do that even more. Um, this hymn, is the hymn tune is Biko because it's named in memory of a black South African activist named Steve Biko. Did any of you know that name? Quite a few hands. There were as well in the first service. Starting in the late 1960s, Steve Biko was a leader in the black consciousness movement, a grassroots anti-apartheid campaign. He was also a founder of the South African Students Organization, which centered um, black leadership in the struggle to end racial segregation. In 1977, pro-apartheid members of the South African government arrested him under the so-called Terrorist Act. Tragically, he was killed on his first day of imprisonment from cruel and inhumane interrogation methods. He was 30 years old. He's a powerful example of that saying that one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. His martyrdom in the anti-apartheid cause inspired many others to carry on. 20,000 people attended his funeral. His story was further immortalized, and some of you may remember this, in the 1987 film Cry Freedom. Have any of you seen that? All right. Uh, the lyrics to this hymn named after him are really quite simple but profound. There is more love somewhere, and I'm going to keep on till I find it. There is more hope somewhere, and I'm going to keep on till I find it. There is more peace somewhere and I'm going to keep on till I find it. There is more joy somewhere, and I'm going to keep on till I find it. Steve Biko was willing to risk his life. He didn't want to die, but he was willing to risk his life to act for more peace and justice in the world. Both his life's work and his posthumous legacy were significant parts of the movement that more than a decade after his death, did lead to the end of racial segregation, the end of apartheid in South Africa in the early 1990s. In a similar spirit, I'd like to invite us to reflect on some recent, recent social movements here in the United States just over the past few decades and to think a little about what does and doesn't work in building the better world we dream about. Now, sometimes sort of weird, quirky things happen, but there actually are patterns and consistencies in what tends to work and what doesn't. Apartheid was ended in South Africa, but why do some movements for social change succeed while others fizzle, while still others fail? For considering this question, one of the most helpful resources I've found recently is a book titled How Change Happens by Leslie Crutchfield. I wasn't previously familiar with her name, but she's the executive director of Georgetown University's Global Social Enterprise Initiative. Uh, she and her team have, it's, and it's nice if you're interested in something, if you have like 20 like half colleagues and half graduate minions that you can make do things for you. Uh, so she's had, with that team, they've looked at movements um, for social change in this country to look for common patterns. 
How many of you remember, for example, going out to eat in a restaurant that had a smoking section and a non-smoking section? Not like a smoking room, but like, like, the, like the smoke was supposed to know to stay on this side, right? And this designated set of tables. Or how many of you remember, I am old enough to remember smoking on airplanes. Anybody? Yeah, right? Um, it was actually until 1988 on a lot of domestic flights and until 2000 on a lot of flights that were longer than two hours. At the same time, many people considered ubiquitous smoking before those changes happened to just be just the way things are, and or too difficult to change because powerful, moneyed interests were intent on blocking change really by any means necessary, lying, cheating, stealing, etc. But today we know that youth smoking rates have dropped to below 6%. And for adults from an all-time high when more than half of American men smoked, rates have flatlined to around 15% on average. Tobacco is banned from most places in the United States, offices, airports, malls, and in some states even casinos. Uh, I actually went about two years ago to see a concert at the Hollywood casinos in Charlestown, and I was like, wait, there are people smoking inside. I was like, you can't do that. Actually, you can there, but uh, it's like a double take. Um, individuals are, of course, free to smoke at home in various designated places if they choose. That's your individual right as adults. But what I'm talking about is this tremendous social shift around smoking that I didn't, I'm from South Carolina, like the tobacco belt. I did not necessarily expect to ever see that um, in my lifetime. Uh, today, I think some of us that care about changing our laws around guns, changing laws around climate change, feel in a similar place to how people not too long ago felt around tobacco control, like they're just these huge moneyed interests, like there's just no hope. But consider other examples of change. Think about MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. They succeeded in cutting by half alcohol-related driving deaths since the 1980s. That is a 50% decline. That's massive change. That's incredible. That's another tremendous social change in a relatively short period of time. I should hasten to add at this point that around this same time period, there's also been social change that, to my mind, are in quite regressive directions. There's a, a, quite a bit to say here. In particular, I would say we should recognize that gun laws in this country today are more lenient than any period in modern U.S. history. There are more gun shops today in the United States than McDonald's and Starbucks combined. So what can we learn from these various movements about what works and what doesn't work? I'll, I'll, I'll start with the bad news. The bad news, according to Leslie Crutchfield and her team at Georgetown, who have crunched the numbers and compared the data, is that there actually is no like one recipe for social change, right? There's no, I can't just hand you a movement in a box for, to get us to a more equitable, equitable and just society. But there's good news as well. They have identified six strategies that seem to distinguish effective social movements from other social movements. Strong grassroots, building momentum state by state, changing both hearts and policy, partnering with, get this, adversarial allies, I'll say more about that, partnering with corporations, and being leaderful, F-U-L-L. I'll say more about each of those factors in turn. As I do so, what are the groups and causes that are really close to your heart? 
As you listen to these six strategies, as I detail them, what might you be able to, you know, are the strategies, the groups you're involved with, might they be missing one or more of these strategies? So be thinking about that as we continue. The first is a strong grassroots. Lots of ordinary people committed to bottom-up grassroots activism for what works in their local area. For example, the single most important reason that the NRA, the National Rifle Association, has been so successful since like the late 70s when they went from being about marksmanship to about being about expanding gun rights. The reason they've been so successful is that gun control um, advocates have historically failed to match the scale and intensity of the NRA's grassroots field movements. For decades, NRA members have been showing up in mass and consistently. And this same factor, the size and intensity of the base, was also part of the success behind MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. It was part of the success behind the coalition of LGBTQ plus folks who catalyzed the legalization of same-sex marriage in this country. In contrast, to date, the much less successful um, movement to prevent gun violence in embodied, let's be honest, by organizations like the Brady Campaign, um, who had good intentions but were not as effective as they wanted to be, were most often focused not on the grassroots but at elites. They were focused on Congress with trying to get comprehensive gun control legislation passed. And I'm all for that, but it hasn't worked. Um, so the really good news is that in just the past few years, there are new players on the field, in particular, Every Town for Gun Safety, who are trying to learn, how do we learn from the mistakes of the past? How do we learn from the successes of the NRA and do what they've been doing? Uh, so now, every time dozens of grassroots NRA activists show up at town council meetings in their neon orange hunting garb, an equal number of passionate women are women in particular, to be honest, are there to meet them uh, with shirts saying moms demand action to prevent gun violence. Um, they're on the opposite side of those town council meetings. I love that. There's no guarantees, but empowering a strong base of grassroots activists is one way to significantly increase your chances of actually creating social change. Second, although it's tempting and sometimes possible, sometimes you can make these push through this national legislation and just create your change in one fell swoop, a much more time-tested and reliable strategy is to build momentum town by town, city by city, state by state. So you snowball. Um, for two decades, if you look back two decades, for example, there was essentially no chance of achieving LGBTQ plus equality on the national level. In fact, the opposite was happening, right? In 1996, you had a allegedly progressive president, Bill Clinton, signing the Defense of Marriage Act um, as marriage is only between opposite sex couples. And there were 13 states with ballot measures at that time you know, rallying around bans of same-sex marriage. Fast forward a decade, things are slowly getting better. There were more non-discrimination bills passed in 2005 than any year since 2002. Um, the Supreme Court had a ruling in 2005 that at least same-sex marriage was no longer illegal, but you could only get married in that year in Massachusetts, right? It's like one, one state. So from that point, a new way forward was dreamed up. It was called the 10 10, 10, 20 equals 50 vision. 
It was this targeted approach to achieve incremental victory wherever possible that would hopefully snowball. So they said, we've got Massachusetts. What are the other nine states to make 10 where we can get full marriage? Where is it most possible, most likely? And then let's not try for that. In the next states, let's just go for civil unions. And in the next 10 states, let's just go for some kind of relationship recognition laws. Let's just go for domestic partnerships. And then in the next 20 states, let's just go for either a non-discrimination law or significant cultural climate change. This piecemeal approach laid crucial groundwork that made possible that Supreme Court decision in 2015 of Obergefell versus Hodges recognizing same-sex marriage rights in all 50 states. You know, they sometimes say, why do you always see politicians like this? Because they're waiting to see which way the wind is blowing, right? And that's not just politicians, that's the Supreme Court too, right? They want to see that, that change the wave. Here's the thing, though. These, you know, there's that saying that change very rarely comes from Washington. Change comes to Washington, right? Here's the thing, though. These strategies can be used by anyone. If you were here two weeks ago for the Harry Potter sermon, Defense Against the Dark Arts, I shared that story about the time the minister for magic visited the Muggle prime minister in England, and he said, why can't you just make all this better? You're the minister for magic. And he said, here's the thing. The other side can do magic, too. Right? So these six strategies I'm saying, they're public knowledge. Right? They can be used for good or for evil. Uh, NRA activists used a similar st um, strategy, as same-sex marriage opponents did, uh, proponents did, to roll back gun restrictions, again, state by state. And they laid the groundwork in 2008 for a terrible, terrible, in my opinion, Supreme Court decision called Columbia versus Heller um, that ruled that the Second Amendment protects an individual's right to possess a firearm unconnected with service in a militia. In my mind, if you want to, you know, have play with weapons of war, join the National Guard, right? That is a well-regulated militia. Anyway, I've said lots about that. Glad to send you that sermon. I can't, can't talk about that right now. Uh, but in 2012, um, in the wake of Sandy Hook, I, I actually really hoped we would just get sweeping federal legislation. I thought, finally, we have experienced sufficient pain to say we've got to change, but that didn't happen. The reality seems to be that we need to do the slow work, even as we continue to work for systemic immediate change, of saying what can we get done town by town, city by city, state by state, to achieve common sense reform for preventing gun violence. The good news is that in the last few years, every town for gun safety has had significant success in about half of U.S. states, that's, that's something, even as there's a lot of work yet to do. If you're interested in this issue, I encourage you Google every town for gun safety and um, get involved. Uh, third, have a dual focus on hearts and policy. Hearts and policy. Traditionally, common sense has held that humans think, then feel, then do. It's a lovely thought. It's wrong. Uh, so, you know, people thought that, well, new data, that makes us think differently, and then that'll change our heart, and then we'll behave differently. Uh, well, you know, think, feel, do. Science has shown that, we cha that changing our minds often doesn't come first, it comes last. So the actual order is feel, do, think. Our visceral emotional reactions cause us to act in various ways, and then we rationalize our emotions, our behaviors. It's what, um, like, you know the, uh, the logical fallacy of something post hoc, where you decide after the fact that we do that 
all the time. There's a tremendous book about this that I've preached about before by Jonathan Haidt called The Righteous Mind. It's incredible. He talks about the elephant rider problem. We like to think that the elephant is our mind and the emotions ride on top. The opposite is the case. The elephant is our emotions and we're kind of, our minds are on top. And if the elephant gets scared, it's off and running and you're just along for the ride, you're rational, you know. Uh, or he uses a lawyer analogy. Uh, this is not to disparage lawyers, it's actually impressive. Lawyers are really good at arguing both sides, right? Who's ever paying their bills, right? That, that's, lawyers are advocates. And that tends to be what our rational minds, not always, but often, our rational minds are like lawyers. They're just being an advocate for whatever side our emotions have made us. Um, so that's why if you've ever been in like a rational argument, sometimes you can rationally change somebody's mind. Often those arguments begin to feel to me like you're banging your head against a brick wall. The wall doesn't change, but your head starts to hurt, you know? Um, so this feel-do-think approach, starting with feelings, was used to great effect in the marriage equality movement, particularly with relatives or friends sharing their stories of loved ones coming out of the closet, right? That, they didn't change their mind about same-sex marriage. Their hearts were broken open by their friends and family coming out of the closet and sharing those stories. And then finally they found over time, oh wait, my mind has changed, right? At this point, it's crucial to remember that our third point is emphasizing not only hearts, but policy. Marriage equality ad activists were simul simultaneously seeking to change hearts and the law of the land. Uh, so in contrast, for example, Occupy Wall Street effectively changed minds and many minds and hearts with their slogan, we are the 99%, but they never coalesced around specific policy demands. The key is to emphasize hearts and policy. Fourth, partner with adversarial allies. But wait, aren't my allies supposed to be like nice and on my side? Not always. Uh, here's another place where we need to name some hard truths. Have you ever heard the term liberal circular firing squad? That's when progressive activists sit around and squabble and feud amongst themselves. And the word of one activist thinking back on what it was like to be part of the tobacco control movement and his experience is echoed by many other people's stories and other movements, including that one. He said, I didn't anticipate the ferocity, the nastiness, the viciousness. Not I anticipated that in our opponents, the people and organizations, that, the industry opponents, but I was surprised by the ferocity, the nastiness, the viciousness of those people and organizations I thought were supposed to be my allies, that I thought we were on the same team. He said, this is a movement that eats its own. And that's too often true. The lesson here is that in movements that have succeeded, at some point, often after a lot of squabbles, finally someone says, people, we have to get our bleep together. And finally, people if it's going to succeed, set aside their egos, set aside their control issues, and work together in coalition to, for the greater good. That's what it means to partner with adversarial allies. Fifth, partner with corporations. Especially in the wake of Citizens United, that's that, that's that infamous corporations or people decision. Now, that's all complicated. Done full sermon about that already. I can't go into that again, but you know what I'm talking about, I suspect. Um, corporations are sometimes viewed as exclusively villains whose power needs to be curtailed uh, if we're going to do anything about wealth inequality. I wholeheartedly agree with that on one level, but it's also true that if you study the history of social change, businesses have often played a crucial positive role, modeling progressive policy changes. You can think about important businesses who said, we are gonna pass 
within our company LGBT plus um, non-discrimination policies because we're tired of our, you know, our employees having to worry about health care and discrimination. We just want them to be free and do their job. And that was powerful to say, look at these Fortune 500 companies who have done this. We can do this. Um, often or, uh, businesses have been partners in advocacy and education, also giving money, but also underrated the ways in which corporations have often innovated products that have been really crucial in the history of social change. Things like electric cars that may continue to be crucial in the work for climate justice. Uh, don't forget about the ways breathalyzers, for example, were crucial for MAD, for Mothers Against Drunk Driving, the ways um, smart guns may be increasingly helpful in gun, preventing gun violence. Or what about Nicorette gum? You want to talk about something that made a difference in the tobacco control movement. Nicorette gum did. In seeking social change, corporations really can be crucial allies. Finally, um, be leaderful. F-U-L-L. -L. Find a balance of shared power between the extremes of a leaderless anarchy. I mean, I have time and space sometimes for anarchist collectives. There's something to be said. Arguably, Unitarian Universalism is a little bit like an anarchist collective. But, uh, but that true leaderless anarchy and a complete hierarchical dictatorship, you're better off somewhere in between. For instance, have you ever heard of Founders Syndrome? Uh, that's when an organization is unable to grow beyond the abilities of a single person, sort of charismatic leader to micromanage. Like if you, if you can't grow beyond what that one person can micromanage, it's going to limit your growth. And or an organization or movement can fall apart if you have one linchpin person who burns out, quits, retires, or dies. None of us are getting out of this alive, right? So to avoid this trap, be leaderful. Distribute power at various points. Pay attention to training successors, etc. It's also important to avoid the other extreme. Again, Occupy Wall Street, for example, is a famous uh, instance of being leaderless. Uh, and having a leader can be crucial. I'll give you one um, powerful example. I spoke earlier about how truly effective, um, for worse, I would argue, the NRA has been at the grassroots level, level. But they also have a strong primary leader who's made a huge difference. He is, to my mind, a force for evil in the world, but he is a powerful force for evil in the world. And a an incredibly effective force. In the wake of Sandy Hook, so Wayne LaPierre is who I'm talking about. Uh, in the wake of Sandy Hook in December 2012, some of you will remember that just after Sandy Hook, he just wouldn't concede that guns were the problem. Uh, he said, quote, the only thing that stops a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We need more guns, better guns, not less, he proclaimed. His tone-deaf response was appalling to millions, but let's be honest, the NRA in the years after that went on to secure even more gun rights victories, not less. Not fewer, technically. Uh, for the, so I don't hear emails from everyone. That's <laughs> sure my grammar. Uh, Having, yeah, don't tweet at me. Uh, so having an effective leader can really make a crucial difference. Let's take the lessons where we can find them and apply them for the good, for peace, for justice, for liberty. For now, I'll leave the last word to the final paragraph of Leslie Crutchfield's important book, How Change Happens. Uh, she begins by quoting um, Robert F. Kennedy who said that few will have the, the greatness to by themselves bend history. But each of us can work to change a small portion of events. So what is within your sphere of influence? Where can you affect change?
It is from numberless acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped. Each time someone stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or acts out, strikes out against injustice, they send forth a tiny ripple of hope. Maybe maybe it's just a tiny ripple. But those tiny ripples of hope, they cross each other and form a million different centers of energy, of daring. And those ripples can sometimes build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls. That is how change happens.